0: Folks, welcome to The Enemies List. I'm Rick Wilson. Our guest today is David Rothkoff, who is the author of the terrific new book, American Resistance. These are stories of people who were inside the government during the Trump administration, many of whom fought the excesses, the insanity, the craziness, the illegalities of Donald Trump. Some of them you'll like, some of them you won't like. But David tells an amazing story of people who put country over over the party who put the law over his, Trump's preferences, and a lot of them who may have saved us on some critical dates like January 6th and June 1st during the Lafayette Square riots.
1: There was also maintained what was called an enemy's list. Democrats want
0: Republicans
1: dead. I could stand in the middle of Fifth Avenue and shoot somebody.
0: The women with the least likelihood of getting pregnant are the ones most worried about having abortions. On January 6th of 2021, you had tens of thousands of people peacefully protesting. If
1: you're the president of the United States, you can declassify just by saying
0: "Um, it's declassified. It's not a right-wing conspiracy theory, it's not QAnon, it's real. (laughs) I'm Rick Wilson, and this is The Enemies List. David, thank you so much for coming on The Enemies List today. I am just delighted to have you with us. And I want to talk with you about your new book, American Resistance, and to get a picture uh, from you as a guy who really knows this sort of stuff, um, how the how the hated uh, deep state uh, ended up saving America in the last six years and, and where you think it's going in terms of what patriotic Americans serving in government are going to face if if Trump comes back into power?
1: Well, you know, of course there's no deep state, right? The U.S. government is the largest organization right. in the world. And so you have to ask yourself, why did they come up with this deep state myth? Uh, I mean, people have talked about this uh, deep state. I mean, it sort of dates back actually to Turkish government in, in the early 20th century. Turkey, right? Yeah. yeah. But, but, mm-hmm. but, the, but the reality is, It didn't really get traction here until around the Trump campaign. And so, you know, why? Why why are they targeting the deep state? Well, we found out during the Trump administration. You know, Trump was able to control the Republicans in the Senate, and he was able to put his own people in charge at DOJ, um, but he couldn't remake the whole government. And so he would come up with ideas, whether it was a Muslim ban or ideas to pull out of alliances or launch military attacks or you know, bad management of COVID or whatever. And all of a sudden he discovered that officials who had been in the government a long time and officials he appointed who had been government professionals, people who dedicated their lives to this, were saying, "Uh, no, sir, there's a law. You you, you can't break the law. Or no, sir, there's a constitution. We've got to work within the limits of the constitution. And he didn't like hearing no, sir. Uh, he thought as the president he should be able to do what he wanted. Some of the people around him Stephen Miller's they didn't like hearing it um, and they were really frustrated right. when the Muslim band got sidetracked and redone or when um, uh, you know the generals tried to get him into a room and say, you know alliances really matter and he pushed back on that or you know when he had crazy ideas like, hey, let's launch missiles at Mexico, or let's create a moat full of alligators. And they said, "Uh, no, sir, you know, a moat full of alligators is kind of a bad idea. And by the way, you also can't shoot at Mexicans. You wanted to shoot at them. You can't do that. And so, you know, gradually over time, he realized that the guardrail that was working was the character of professionals in the government, civil servants, Foreign service officers, intelligence officers, military officers, and government professionals that he himself had appointed who had long served in the government. And so he started trying to figure out how to fire them, uh, side, you know, get rid of them, right. not go through Senate confirmations. He started putting in his own hacks into different positions who would just say, yes, sir, and not follow the law. And by the very end, he proposed this idea, and that gets to your final point of your question, called Schedule F. And Schedule F was Mm -hmm. essentially the idea that he could fire 50,000 of these government professionals. And um, he put that in place. Biden took it out. Since then, across the Republican Party, they've said, oh, no, we're going to put that back in place uh, because we can't have a cadre of government officials who actually place loyalty to the country ahead of loyalty to the party and you know we talk a lot about trump and the threat he posed to democracy or MAGA gop and the threat they posed to democracy in terms of stealing elections um, but another path towards authoritarianism is gutting the government of people who actually follow the law you know, because it takes us away from being sure. a nation of laws, and so, to me, the book, you know, told us some crazy stories about Trump. Let me put, have, you know, turn to the people who actually did this stuff, and explain how uh, they sort of kept the government covering, coloring within the lines in a number of key places. Uh, but then it frames us for the fight we're about to have, the fight we're about to have about mm-hmm. whether they can clear out all the guardrails and go to full on
0: fascism. I you know, I think people don't want to put that fine a point on it, but they should. That's what that's what they're proposing is a control of of every element of, of government at a level where there's nothing but the will of the dear leader. And there was nothing but the you know the power of the of of the, of the, the single the single you know guy at the very top of the pyramid, regardless of the law. And you tell a lot of stories in this book about folks like Alex Vindman and Fiona Hill and Miles Taylor and others. What was the what was the one story you found the most compelling of these people who stood up and said, "Whoa, I can't be a part of this. I can't. I can't just obey." You know, as everyone knows, you know, when you when you as as a former Schedule C in my in my very uh, younger days, you know, you you swear an oath to the Constitution, no matter whether you're a park ranger or a Navy SEAL or a or, a, or a you know somebody at the Department of Energy. You all, everybody swears that oath. What's the story that you found the most compelling of this group about how they realized their oath was going to collide with the with the political demands of the Trump administration?
1: You know, I interviewed about a hundred people. Picking out an individual mm-hmm. story is hard. It it, it also probably un, under, undermines the, the main point. Every okay. single one of them. No, no, I I I want to sort of tie the stories together. And every single one of them said to me a couple of things, one of which was that they realized that the Trump administration was going off the rails from the get-go. Like nobody said, Oh, I mm-hmm. thought this was, you know, fine. You know, with with it, whether it was during the campaign, during the transition, or the first couple of weeks, they said, nope, this is not like any other government I've ever dealt with. This is dangerous, very, very early on. But, you know, the, the the other commonality here, or there too, is that they all said, we have to find a way to respect the law and work together and work around a man who, again, they almost universally considered unfit for the office, and many of them considered to be a, essentially a lunatic, you know, a guy who was not only incompetent to the job and inexperienced, um, but who was so narcissistic and transactional that he, he was not acting for the country. He was only acting for himself. And the final point, and again, every this was almost universal among the people mm-hmm. I spoke to, was they were deeply afraid that Trump would get reelected. These, these are people, some who served in his cabinet, who said if he gets reelected, he's going to have learned from the past four sure. years how to quash the opposition, how to get what he wants through. And, you know, we saw it, right? You saw it at the very end of the administration, mm-hmm. he, he, he didn't go to the, sure. the Senate to get sure. people approved. He just plunked Chad Wolf in at DHS. He plunked Chris Miller in. Um, at defense. He plunked it down, the Rick Grinnells and the Kash Patels and these others. Kash Patel, right. Right. And and so he he put them in the government. Why? Because they would say, yes, sir. And they they wouldn't Mm -hmm. cause a problem. And the people I spoke to all said, if Trump got reelected, or if somebody Trumpy got reelected, they're going to clear out all these folks who make it harder for them to get their extreme agenda through. Um, and to me, that, you know, the, the book is full of great individual stories. But what was really striking, because, you know, Washington is Washington, you know this, usually you get disagreements, right? This was universal. Right. The, and this was top mm-hmm. down. It was across the board. They, they the people who served in this, I, I, I was at an event last night, a book kickoff event, and I, ran into one of these people and he had served in many administrations at a very high level um, one of the most distinguished diplomats and and also military experts in our in our country's recent history and he said we can never go through this again he said you know and he he served in the administration he had a very high level job but he was like that we well, we have to do whatever we can to avoid going through this again well, I think one of the things that that, you know, that we
0: saw with people who went in with good intentions and who thought, okay, I can be a guardrail, I can be a protective force, I can, I can keep the bad ideas from happening, um, they recognized pretty early, as you point out, that wasn't going to happen, they, that, that he was always going to be who he was. And you know, as he gets ready to announce, we're going to go through it again. There's a really good chance that Donald Trump will win. The nomination. I mean, an extremely good chance of winning the nomination, and there's an odds-on chance the guy wins the White House again. I think that people who are in government now need to start thinking about this, and and I think they need to start considering, you know, how the law is going to be assaulted by this guy, especially at DOJ. I think he'll probably go in and just clean house there, top to bottom. They'll fire every single human being they can they can put their hands on there, but so the cautionary tales of all these people when they realized it was there was there a was there a moment where they just said in aggregate right from your from your interviews where they just said all right i'm going to slow it all down or did they say i'm going to you know try to put up roadblocks how how what was their approach to trying to stop the crazy
1: well i think it was that there was a case by case approach um uh, almost the a- inevitably, the first thing they did was they tried to find somebody else they trusted in the administration and said, what what do we do about this? And sometimes that led to groups of cabinet secretaries, Mm -hmm. you know, for example, on election security, getting together and essentially running a parallel process. And that included the FBI and the the, the, uh, National Security Agency, the Department of Homeland Security, where they sort of said, well, look, this guy is so paranoid about talking about election security that we're just going to you know, we'll inform the White House to the degree that we must, but we'll just try to keep this sub-Rosa, get things done. And that's why we ended up having a fair election in 2020. Uh, in other cases, uh, there was no ability to do that. And so whether right. it was Alexander Vindman and the whistleblower or other whistleblowers, they said, we've got to go through the process and go to the Congress and try to, you know, I mean, yep. the president was withholding aid to Ukraine. Seem much worse. seems much worse now right um but much worse but 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 you know they 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 so they used that tactic in other cases they used the tactic that you refer to you know, probably you learned this when you were in the government which is um to um you know as as i t- t- refer to it in the book you know to sort of uh, agree but not to comply yep. you know they sort of say yes sir and and then they slow walk it because they know the government the, the political officials will be out of At their the Pentagon. Center. We called it yes uh, in it other cases death. they just became very <laughs> right. Right. Well, and, sure, and by the sure, way, in sure. every government in the world, they call it yesing it today. And then you know, in another you know, other cases like the Muslim ban, they said, uh, "No, there's a law. You can't ban people unless there is a good national security reason. We have to do a review." We're going to go to every embassy. We're going to ask them what they think. Uh, we're going to go to the Pentagon. We're going to ask them if they really want to ban everybody from right. Iraq. When the people who worked with us in Iraq um, are people we want to help get out, not keep trapped in the country with a target on their back. Um, and so essentially, they followed the law, and that was enough to to stop him. So. You know, it, the, everybody, you know, it was a case by case, you know, on issues like Russia and, um, where they couldn't you literally mm-hmm. couldn't talk to Trump about Russia. Right. Because he was so neuralgic. He thought every time somebody brought it up, it was questioning his his competence. Very often, you know, what would happened, for example, in the NSC when John Bolton was there is he said, well, I'll talk to Trump and I'll manage this. Right. You just do what you would do otherwise. And and we won't we won't discuss it with him. Um, Now, some people might say, well, that's insubordination. But actually, they were following the law. They were honoring their oath. They were recognizing that, you know, irrational or dangerous orders are not to be followed. Um, And they were doing the right thing. Inside the Trump White House, he
0: had implementers. He had people who were were the, the the folks who would come out and, and drop the hammer on on trying to get these things to move forward in in the face of this resistance, and I mean, it, Steve Bannon is one of the most well known in the early phases of the administration. Who would you say are the people you think will be back in Trump's orbit if he gets reelected, um, and who will face uh, who who will pose a, a real threat as we go forward?
1: Well, you know, some of those people are people are still around right. him, like you know Stephen Miller. Um, who from the very beginning was, you know, a, a person who just saw the rest of the government and the law as an impediment to fulfilling a kind of racist vision of what the United States was. There are others who fall into this category, the right. Cash Patels and the Rick Grinnells, who would do anything, say anything far right. right, Chad, the Chad Wolfs and the uh, um, so forth. Uh, there are people out there out in the, elsewhere in the, U.S., though, who have subsequently signed on, despite the Mm -hmm. fact that there was a coup, despite the fact that there was no evidence of uh, fraud, to Trump's big lie in such a blind way that surely um, he will embrace them somehow, you know, the Carrie Lakes of this world. Um, uh, and, 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 you know, I think that that raises a bigger problem, and that is, This is not just about Trump at this point. If Ron DeSantis becomes president of the United States, this is how he will act. And we've seen it, right? We've seen it in Florida. We've seen him trying to shut down real data about COVID. We've seen him kick reporters out of covering events. We've seen him fire officials for Mm -hmm. suggesting that they disagreed with um, policy, not even implementing a policy that was different. Uh, He's behaved as a kind of little... Um, sort of state state level um, uh, autocrat, you know already. And you know if if he's the candidate, or Ted Cruz is the candidate, or uh, Josh Hawley's the candidate, or Tom Cotton's the candidate, or Glenn Youngkin is the candidate, we're going to get this same crap. You know, it's just it's going to it's going to happen again um, because they've all sort of passed That's right. That's the MAGA loyalty test of I will disregard facts, I will disregard the law, I will disregard national interests, party above all. And, um, and, and so I think the problem goes well beyond Trump. Well, I think, I think
0: your point it is of them emulating the behavior that Trump modeled in Washington is absolutely on, on target. Youngkin in Virginia, uh, and and DeSantis in my home state of Florida. I mean Ron DeSantis has exercised executive power in Florida. He hasn't strained the boundaries of it. He's shattered all of them. The legislature is it lives in absolute terror of crossing him because he's got this gigantic trolling operation and this this sort of postmodern political power it doesn't emerge from the barrel of a gun, but from the from the tweets of of Ron DeSantis's, you know, troll army. And they're and they're terrified of him. He's cowed corporations as large as Disney in Florida, and so that 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 behavior that Trump modeled of you know the law doesn't matter, screw it, we're going to do what we want um, is definitely being imitated by a lot of these Republican governors. And and look, when you look at uh, Michaels in uh, Wisconsin, he promised yesterday to an audience of Republicans, or day before yesterday, that they would never lose another election with him. The Republicans would never lose again and you know in a in a in a in a democratically governed Republic that's not how it works but for them that is how it works I mean they really are saying the quiet part out loud about this um and and, and you know as your book as your book dives into the the stories of everybody who 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 did resist who did fight back what was it what was it that kept them going aside from the sort of amorphous you know, sense of patriotic duty. Was there another like through line with these folks that kept them in the fight that, that, that allowed them to stand up against this, this really kind of hideous, um, you know, political and media and social media pressure that the Trump world was always bringing?
1: Well, I don't want to sound like a sap. Um, you know, I'm from New Jersey and I was born cynical, but, um, don't minimize the sense of patriotic duty. Okay, you know a lot of these a lot of these people serve in the government, um, make much less money than they can anywhere else. Right. Uh, partic- particularly, particularly the career people, um, and they do it because. And this is a really important thing, and it goes back a long time. Uh, I and I, I trace the origin of this problem back a long time within the Republican Party. Um, they believe in public service. Um, they do not believe government is the enemy. They believe government can help. And, uh, you know, m- in my sense, this this group of people um, were therefore properly motivated. But I think a lot of them, in addition to that, as things unfolded, began to recognize the danger of right. Trump the danger of reelecting Trump. And, uh, you know, a number of them um, said, I, I, I stayed because I thought they, there would be a coup or, there, you know, that they were going to try to steal the election or that he would, you know, I mean, Trump in 2020 was talking about putting the 101st Airborne Division in the street of Portland, yeah. Portland to fight George Floyd protesters. He was talking about literally breaking down every kind of uh, norm and barrier to To bad behavior that existed in the past, and a lot of the people said, "This is a this is a big risk," sure, and we've got to stop
0: it. You know, I think there are some moments where, where, like June first in Lafayette Square, where the boundary got so close to breaking. I mean, when General Milley, and I know he's has said later he regrets doing it, but when General Milley walked across Lafayette Square with Donald Trump, when Trump is essentially trying to get Trying to get the government to 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 escalate with peaceful protesters, with with at a level that I mean, look, the escalation was extreme. I think Trump would have been fine with the people being shot dead in the street that day. That's that's my opinion on it. Knowing his character and knowing who he is, but there were people that day who were with him, like General Milley. Who, I mean that that to me seems like one of the inflection points. Where, because I remember he said, "You know, we will very quickly solve this problem when the military arrives," um, and it just struck me that that was one of the moments where we came very, very close to the cliff. We're very close to the edge of of something that would have turned even darker. Um, were there any stories of that day that that struck you from from the from the the people that were around Trump trying to slow well, that I down? I mean, the
1: story of that day. The the story of that day strikes mm-hmm. me. Because, you know, Trump wanted to do crazy yeah. things. And then, you know, Ivanka and Hope Hicks said, hey, don't do something crazy. Why don't you walk across the park and hold up a Bible and, you know, we'll do a photo op that shows that you are trying to do something that looks like healing. And so he goes, OK, well, you know, you know, he's still on the the kick that he wants to have the military right. there. And so he gets Esper and Millie to walk across the park with him. And you know, there was it crossing the park. There was a kind of a penny drop moment where Millie turns to Esper. They've been friends for a long time. They've Mm -hmm. known each other and worked together for a long time. And he says, "We're being used. I'm not going to do this anymore." And he walks in another direction. He says, "I'm you know I'm going to go talk to the National Guard. I am not going to be become politicized this way." Uh, And of course, Trump using the military as a political prop had, had been happening for a long time. And for a lot of military leaders, there was this tension. You know, they're they're raised to sort of say yes, sir, mm-hmm. and um, you know they don't push back until it gets extreme. Jim Mattis didn't push back until he thought pulling out of Syria would have been a catastrophe. Um, should he have done it sooner? In my view, he probably should have done it sooner. But you know, there's a tipping point, and for Millie He was going along with this stuff, being very candid behind the scenes, but in public, going along with it, right up until about halfway across Lafayette Park. And from that moment on, Millie becomes outspoken, writes letters, makes speeches, does other kinds of things to say, you know, this is a dangerous direction. And within the parameters of the job that he had, which is a you know, as chairman of the Joint Chiefs, an advisory job primarily. Um, and, uh, you know, he started, you know, sort of banging the pots and pans and making some noise so that people understand, would understand the risks. And, and Esper, the same thing. Esper was like, you know, this, this was a turning point. I talked to Esper at some mm-hmm. length for this, and he, this was a turning point in, 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 in his time in office. But he also said, look, I was worried about what was going to happen in the election. So I made a decision to stay until that, until the election. And, you know, what percentage of that is reputation management? What percentage of that is ambition? And what percentage of that is actually making the right judgment? People can judge for themselves, but clearly things were really going off the rails starting, starting around June 1st, as you accurately pinpoint.
0: I think th- that, that to me has always struck me as like the moment where, where, and, and well, look, I, I wrote an article in The Washington Post, I think, in 2017 that said, you know, if you're inside the government at this point, late in, late in 2017, if you're inside the government at this point, you're not going to change who this guy is. You got to get out. And, and you know, I, I, I heard from people who were inside the government at the time who, you know, I had known from either Republican or, or defense circles. And a lot of them were still held to that, like, I'm going to be okay. We're not going to fall victim to this guy. Don't worry. It's going to be fine. By the end of it, there were still a very few left inside the government. But on June 1st, I heard – I can't tell you the number of people I heard from, like, I'm done. I may I may stick it out, but I'm done with this fucking guy. They really had, like – like it was right to hear on June 1st.
1: Right, and then that ha- – that, and, you know, for all the ones that the, the penny didn't drop then right. – as trump started to pedal the big lie in the wake of the election it started to drop right. then as they realized january 6 was going to be an inflection point for the rest it you know start it would drop then and then for you know the the you know some of the cabinet secretaries and others who were sort of hanging on to the last minute january 6 happened and they said okay this is a bridge too far i'm not doing this anymore and you know some many of these people responded too slowly but on the other hand and, and I saw that op-ed of yours, and I thought it was a good column. But, and I, and I agreed with it. But on the other hand, I think we're lucky that a bunch of these people stayed. In
0: retrospect, I think um, that's right. I think that's right, David. I mean, I think, I think the fact that that there was a resistance inside, um, and, and that is, to loop back on what you said in the beginning, that is clearly where the Schedule F thing has percolated up from. And, and folks, there, there, the president gets to appoint a couple thousand people under what's called Schedule C, uh, and they appoint a, a smaller handful under what's called SES, Senior Executive Service. Those and, and Senate confirm. You know, those are those are a much smaller batch, even. But this idea of Schedule F means that the president can politicize almost every significant government job. And I mean, and, and I think David uh, that when he comes back, if Trump is back in power, the loyalists around him will understand. That there was a resistance, and they will purge people who are not absolute proven loyalists. They'll leave the they'll leave the jobs blank if they have to. Uh, they'll leave the jobs open if they have to, uh, with the with the intent of having in absolute control exercised from the Oval, no discretion by anybody in the in the agencies, especially uh, I think the intelligence services, the Defense Department, and the Department of Justice.
1: Yeah look I think you're absolutely right you know and I think there's a tendency on the media and commentators and just a natural human tendency to look at what you might call the the names above the title you know the president of the United States some big name senator and say this will determine where things go this will determine whether we have a democracy or not but the people around Trump the people within the movement the people in the extreme parts of the party They recognize that the work needs to be done at another level. They've got to replace secretaries of state. Prior to this year, I would guess most of the people who listen to you or read what you write, they didn't pay attention to a secretary of state um, election (laughs) ever. But all of a sudden, you know, you have to sort of say, well, wait, these are the people who are going to certify the election results. Oh, yeah. Brad Raffensperger, I can name for you the secretary of state of Georgia, which is, you know, gives you a sense of the role that this might play, and that's one level this can happen. People who run elections at a state and local become real, ele- level become really important. And another level that that is really, really important to preserving democracy is having government professionals who will follow the rule yep. of law and take that oath to the Constitution seriously, and. You know, most Americans will go schedule left, snooze, change the channel, watch Bachelor, yeah, watch way too you know whatever, old. and way and and just think this doesn't have anything to do with my life, but it does. And one of the reasons I wrote the book is to say you got to understand the role these people play, and by the way, they're Republicans and Democrats. It's across sure. the political spectrum. This is nonpartisan. You got to You got to understand the role these people play. In order to value it. And you got to understand that it's not just Trump now. Newt Gingrich has said he wants to do this thing. Ron DeSantis has spoken Mm -hmm. out in favor. People across the Republican Party, members of Congress, have said, oh, yeah, we got to do this. We got to put this in. And, um, you know, whereas they didn't really realize it until the end of the last Trump administration, you know, this is going to happen in day one of whatever the next administration. Oh, yeah that hues to the sort of MAGA GOP, anti-democratic, and I mean that small d democratic approach. Uh, And and what I'm just trying to do is to say, look, fascism comes creeping in at many levels in your society. Open your eyes, look at all of these levels. We have to fight it at every one of these levels. Um, uh, it's not just about whose name is on the top of the ballot.
0: You know, David, that's, that's, that's a terrific point. And I really want to thank you for coming on today. American resistance folks is terrific. I recommend it. Um, and it is, it is like a lot of stories of heroism. It's not always somebody who runs to the guns. It's somebody who stands their ground. And, and some of these people are not perfect. And some of these people you may not like very much, but a lot of them did the right thing. By following the law and their oath of office and abiding by the Constitution, and I would expect someday, you know, there may be a Democratic president who has people that 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 push back against excesses on their side. We want that. We want we want a steadying force in our in our in our government of people who are going to put the law before politics. And and David, you told some really great stories here, and I really appreciate you coming on today. And uh, best of luck with the book. And American Resistance, folks, go out and give it a read. Thank you. It's been a wild week. And what better way to celebrate the one-week anniversary of the Red Wave's death than with a special live announcement happening tomorrow, November 15th. No, not the one in Mar-a-Lago, but it is related. Stay tuned to my Twitter feed or sign up to learn more at joinr2.com. That's join, the letter R, the number two, dot com. When you sign up, you'll learn more about Resolute Square, the new home of this podcast, and many more to come. And if you're listening to this after the big reveal, welcome to the team that's fighting the MAGA media and for democracy. This week's enemies list is simple. It's you, Elon. You're the problem, if I may quote Taylor Swift. Twitter has been a platform in this country for all of its flaws, for all of its chaos, for all of its trolls and bots and spam and shitty human beings that actually has become the town square. It actually has been a place where politics gets decided and debated and fought back and forth and where smart people and dumb people clash with their ideas and come together. Elon Musk is proving right now that this $44 billion investment he made is essentially a midlife crisis playing out over a social media platform. It's remarkable how bad he is at this. The disastrous entry with this Twitter verification game that has led to nothing but chaos on the platform, nothing but madness on the platform, is entirely something he could have anticipated. He's a smart guy, but he's narrow smart, not broad smart. Elon, listen. Get rid of the dude bro caucus around you. Get rid of the guys that are telling you that you're going to own the libs by, by this Twitter verification scheme where you've allowed not the voices of citizen journalists to emerge, but rather to allow trolls to come out and put you in legal jeopardy by doing things like letting the uh, uh, imitators fake that Eli Lilly is cutting the price of insulin to zero you are in increasing legal jeopardy and you're putting this platform in jeopardy. And as fucked up as Twitter is and as terrible as Twitter is, it is, at scale, the, the largest of the platforms that make sense in the speed and the crispness and the clarity of, demanded, of arguments that demand compression and intelligence and a narrow focus. You are fucking it up. You are breaking it. If that's your intent, just fucking say it, bro. If you want to just kill it for whatever lib-owning reason, just say it. But it's a $44 billion bet. It's also a platform globally that can and should and may someday again be a force for voices that want to improve the lives of the world that want to fight for democracy, that want to have some fun, that want to go out and make arguments and engage in a way that's almost impossible in any other way in this day and age. Elon, stop fucking up. Get your shit together. Because today, you're on The Enemies List. Thanks for listening to The Enemies List, folks really appreciate the number of people who have downloaded the show, who've liked, subscribed. And those things matter. If you could follow us on your favorite podcasting app, we would be deeply grateful. If you could share it with your friends, we would be deeply grateful. I think this is going to be a great set of conversations. I hope you'll keep joining us for them. We are going to have a lot to talk about. So again, if you could like, subscribe, review, and share this program with your friends, I would be deeply grateful. We're having a great time doing this, and we hope you are too. And remember, whatever you do, stay off the list.